Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we are coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Before I give you a rundown on today's program, I want to thank some of our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. You can now order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop. Groovy Goods is about community. It's about a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. You can learn more at groovy-goods.com or just stop by at the corner of 23rd and University near Drake University in Des Moines. All right, so our program today, later in the show, uh, we're going to be joined by Kat Haber, Uh, She's going to be talking about the Living Brightly Climate Activation Workshop coming up this week. Also, we'll be hearing, uh, we'll be dialoguing with uh, John Neiderbach about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And then later in the program, Russ Finch is going to join Kathy Burns and I to discuss Greenhouse in the Snow, something happening in western Nebraska that has a lot of promise for those of us trying to grow food in colder climates. But first, I'm delighted to welcome to our program... Steve Norris. Uh, Steve is a grandfather and great-grandfather. He lives with his wife, and also she's also an activist. He's in the Appalachian Mountains of western North Carolina. And we first met back in 2013 when organizing the Great March for Climate Action. Uh, Steve uh, certainly understands the power of marching, and he's also been arrested uh, multiple times for nonviolent civil disobedience, including helping to stop the construction of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Uh, first of all, Steve, congratulations on stopping the ACP. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, we were, we were actually, it was last year, <laughs> we were actually shocked because Dominion and Duke, we knew that costs were escalating uh, hugely, but we didn't expect that they would pull the plug, and they did. And uh, unlike some other pipelines, which seem to have multiple lives, this one, looks like it's completely dead. So, uh, major victory. Yeah, that's good. I hope that victory can transfer to our situation here in the Midwest where we're still fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline. But that's another conversation. Uh, And again, you and I met through the Great March for Climate Action, but uh, that was not the first march you were involved with. And and, uh, it looks like you have continued to use marching as a way to build awareness and energy for action on climate change. And you've got a march coming up uh, this month June, from uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, to Wilmington, Delaware. That's, yep. an, that's an interesting route. Uh, tell us about the uh, significance <laughs> of that route. Well, in 2013, we did a walk from Camp David, Maryland, to the White House to protest Keystone, and it was very good, very successful, got a lot of attention. But when we started to organize, and we were thinking of doing the same thing to try to challenge uh, President Biden to go further than he has proposed to go, in order to address issues around climate change and pipelines and various fossil fuel infrastructures and the financing of fossil fuels. So we were going to do it in Washington. And actually, my uh, 32-year-old son said to me, hey, Dad, you should not do this in Washington. You should do it in Biden's turf. Uh, Biden was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he has lived most of his adult life in uh, in Wilmington, Delaware, 
And so we checked with the people who were interested in doing the walk, and, and we agreed pretty easily that going from Scranton to Wilmington might get uh, President Biden's attention and maybe the attention of the media easier than in Washington, well, where the, our noise kind of can get drowned out pretty easily by everything else that's going on. We've, uh, we've got to know Biden pretty well here in Iowa. I mean, not just most recently in 2019, but dating back to 1987. I first met him in 1987. Uh, we both still had hair. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, we've we've had we've had quite a relationship over the years. I even played pool with uh, with Biden once for an hour at a bar here in Des Moines. And of I course, hope you beat him. Uh, no, he beat me. Actually, he's pretty good. <laughs> but he talks all the time of Scranton. I mean, I mean, I don't I don't blame him. It's, he's got some great stories from his time in Scranton. But sure. I think I think that will um, maybe get his attention. So you know, and how do you think he's doing on climate overall? Well, he's doing better than anyone else, any other president has done. So we have to give him a lot of credit for taking this issue as seriously as he's taking it. Uh, Re-embracing the Paris uh, Climate Accords and a whole lot of other things, you know, that are just really good. But on a scale of uh, zero to 100, uh, of course, I'd rate President Trump at uh, minus 10 and maybe <laughs> Obama at a 25. But Biden, I'd... I'd rate maybe at a 50. So we got another 50 to go, which would mean canceling uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Line 3 Pipeline, the Penny's Pipeline. I mean, I could go on naming pipelines yeah. and other uh, fossil fuel facilities which are being pr either proposed, permitted, or being talked about in the country right now. And that need to be, we need to shut off fossil fuels. We need to stop extracting and burning fossil fuels. That is the bottom line. And Biden's not there yet. Now, in his, uh, the, the April, the Earth Day uh, climate summit that I think 40 nations participated in, that was highly regarded. It was uh, considered a big step forward. And as you said, I think it's fair enough to say that Joe Biden is doing more on climate than any president ever has. And I will say this, he's doing more on climate than we expected him to, to do. I mean, we had what? 24 candidates traipsing through Iowa in advance of the Iowa caucuses. Uh -huh. And he was he was pretty low on our list in terms of, uh, of candidates we expected. Well, we, we didn't expect him to win. Uh, we also didn't expect, yeah. uh, if he did win, an aggressive climate uh, agenda. And it's been better than that. But as you said, it's still totally inadequate to what the scientific consensus is demanding. I mean, the urgency of the moment cannot be overstated. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, being a grandfather and great grandfather, I really worry what this world is going to look like in the, when they're my age uh, and whether whether life as we know it and the, our civilization as we know it will be sustainable. Now, there's many things we want and need to change, but one of them is not the climate. Right. We need to get the climate under control, climate uh, change under control and and reduce the greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere so back to uh, back to the march it's the uh, yep. again it's called the uh, the walk for our grandchildren and mother earth you'll be walking from scranton pennsylvania to wilmington delaware when do you start we start on what is father's day and the summer solstice which is june 20th and we walk until uh June 28th, when we will be in Wilmington, Delaware, and we'll do an action. We're going to, uh, like other people are doing, take on Chase Bank, which is one of the largest funders right. of fossil fuels in the country, and, and at the same time encouraged 
uh, President Biden to take a stand on uh, the the bank and insurance companies' investments mm. in fossil fuel infrastructure without Chase and other big banks financing the whole fossil fuel right. system, it would be much easier right. to change. That's and uh, and President Biden has not, uh, from what I know, even hinted that he yeah. opposes the kind of uh, uh, financial structure which holds up uh, all of the fossil fuel yeah, stuff going d- on divest- in this country. Divestment has been an, an increasing element of the conversation about how to exactly. move us forward. So uh, how many miles is that from Scranton, Pennsylvania to Wilmington, Delaware? It's about 170 miles, and we're not going to walk the whole distance. There's no way we can do that in the eight days that we've got. We are going to ride some of it, and uh, that's also so we're planning to meet with community groups in virtually every town that we go through, and multiple community groups in Philadelphia and uh, Chester County, just south of, uh, of Philadelphia, and Bucks County, and and other towns along the way. So this uh, riding, walking some and riding some will give us an opportunity really to do that and do it sort of thoroughly so we can hear their concerns and then maybe we can figure out ways to amplify their voices. And I see you're walking through the Marcellus Shale region, which I became familiar with during the Great March for Climate Action. Uh, yeah. That's a pretty serious um, climate uh, pinpoint with the, uh, with, the, with the growth of the fracking industry. Do you have some specific things planned when you're in that region? <clears throat> well, one thing, there is a uh, waste dump just outside of Scranton, which is uh, right now in the process of trying to get permits to uh, to dump uh, fracking waste in it. Fracking waste is highly toxic water, which has been injected into these fracking wells and then has to be brought back to the surface. And it is radioactive and it's full of toxins. So one of the places we're going is to this trash dump to try to stop that. Then we are dealing with various pipelines, both the, the a Penny's pipeline and the Mariner 2 pipeline, which go into the Philadelphia the area. And the other thing we're dealing with is there are bomb trains, what activists call bomb trains, right, which right. are trains full of gas, which is, of course, highly explosive, that is going right through a, a Puerto Rican neighborhood in Philadelphia. So we're going to visit that neighborhood and talk to people there. And what do you so, want- yeah. What right. do you have planned when you arrive in Wilmington, Delaware, at, uh, at uh, Joe Biden's hometown? Okay, well, we are going to do a train orientation and training and a prayer service and a church. We just met with some people in Wilmington yesterday. I didn't, but uh, one of our, a couple of our people did. So we're going to do that on Sunday the 27th. And then on the morning of the 28th, we are going to Chase Bank in uh, Wilmington, which has its credit card headquarters there, and we're going to make what uh, John Lewis calls some good trouble. Exactly what that'll look like, we're still working it out, but we really, uh, as you and probably know and many of your listeners know, right now there is a pipeline being built in uh, Minnesota called the Line 3 Pipeline, right, right. the least poetically named pipeline in the world, but in any <laughs> case... Uh, it is uh, uh, there's a huge challenge being led by indigenous people in Minnesota against that pipeline. And one of the things they've been pushing on is to get uh, get Chase money out of this out of right. this pipeline and out of their land. Well, Steve, I got to run to a break. I really appreciate you joining us, folks. We've been talking to Dr. Steve Norris. He's uh, working to promote the uh, 
the uh, walk for our grandchildren and Mother Earth starting on Father's Day uh, this month, June, and going for eight days from Scranton, Pennsylvania to Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, Climate March uh, will be promoting the event, and uh, you can get more information there and also at the, at the event's website. Again, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. I appreciate this very much. When we come back, folks, Cat uh, Haber, another uh, voice from the uh, Great March for Climate Action, will be joining us to talk about a climate activation workshop coming up also very soon, this week, in fact. Back, for, back with you in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham has been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yup, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. Welcome back to the program again, Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Thanks again to the local businesses and nonprofits who help make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Bold Iowa, building rural-urban coalitions to address climate change, to prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and to protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes and workshops on how to turn your yard into dinner. You can get information about classes and workshops at Birds, Bees, Urban Farm. Org. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. I would like to welcome Kat Haber to the program. Kat is a TEDx Vail, Colorado organizer. She's also a wife, a mom, a grandmother, and a great-grandmother to a two-year-old Down syndrome darling, as she calls the child. Uh, I've known Kat since we marched together in 2014 with the Great March for Climate Action. In fact, she's quoted in my book. She pretty much gets the last word, in fact. Uh, Kat, welcome <laughs> to the program. Oh, Ed, it is so wonderful to hear your voice again. So happy to be with you. Well, thank you. Great to have you here. And uh, you're organizing, you're always doing something. I can I can barely keep up with you, but now you're organizing a three-day climate activation. Tell us more about that. Oh, gosh, I'm so excited about this, Ed. It feels like the culmination of my life experience so far. It's about calculating our carbon footprint and culminating in our personal climate action plans. We're going to use accountability, we're going to create a community, and we're going to find what kind of enhanced opportunities might result from that. Okay. And that's going to be uh, this week, uh, this coming Friday, well, uh, Thursday, June 3rd, through Saturday, June 5th. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, wow. the first day will be... Uh, will be uh, it will it will be myself and other speakers 
And the first day we'll end up with a Yawanawa Amazon Rainforest Tribal Celebration. Laura and Tashka Yawanawa will be joining us along with the comedian, improvisation, there'll be music. Mm-hmm. So um, we're starting off on, on a really happy note and we hope to end on an an even deeper harmonious note when we go through pain and solution and invitation and decision and commitment and celebration it's it's all about creating a community that is Mm. deeply committed in whatever ways that we can be to kind of nudge our personal uh planetary actions further along uh in right relationship with the earth and this is all online, correct? All online, yeah. Although at some Our, point we may be moving toward um, in-person gatherings again. Wouldn't that be exciting? Yeah, we just did TEDx Youth at Vail last Saturday. We were the first event uh, at the Gerald R. Ford Amphitheater that was uh, a public event. And it was a huge success. Kudos to the youth voices that were speaking up about impact and um, we actually doubled our viewership because we partnered with uh, High Five Access Media, and um, that was actually a hybrid. So we did an in-person event, and we did it online as well. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So you've got a, a kind of a, a three-day plan, and I want I want to ask you about the the first uh, the first day. Uh, part of what you're doing is helping people calculate their carbon footprint. Uh, how do you how I've seen different mechanisms for that. How, what is your preferred approach to coming up with that calculation? Well, it can be done in very simple ways. When you consider how you move, how you communicate, how you nourish your body. Um, so that that results in looking at how you shelter, how you travel how you eat and there are many layers to that we're going to just start out in a three-day event you can imagine that we're going to just um give it a a first go and uh there will be people from europe as well as north america so we'll have different calculations for each Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. it it might be easier in some parts of the world for example I, i know if you're living in a warmer area Logically, you would need less heat <laughs> to mm-hmm. maintain your 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 domicile. Uh, that helps, but um, you know there are ways of living in cold weather that uh, don't involve a huge carbon footprint, and I think that's part of the challenge. Right. Uh, so we're gonna take each person wherever they are, however they come. Whatever their life experiences, we'll have all ages in the experience. And I think that diversity is part of, of the solution in knowing that each of us can be whatever part of changing the way we live on the planet so that um, we live lighter and brighter in, in stronger, connected relationship, not only within ourselves, our head, our heart, and our hands, yeah. but with each other, with the places that we plant ourselves in, with the animals and plants that we find in those places. Now, you talk about uh, working with participants to come up with a, their own personal climate action plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, that, That's a... Uh, that's asking a big 
commitment from people, but I presume people who are participating are ready to take that step. That I, I, I believe that will be the case. Uh, we'll be layering it up over the three days. We'll be looking at it from many different directions, a spiritual grounding and addiction sense, climate justice, um, teams. There's a whole host of different directions that will come at this. And each plan will be very different because all of us are. We find ourselves in different situations in life. And um, I'm pretty excited about it. I actually anticipate some very surprising outcomes. Now, one observation I, I hear from time to time, and maybe you've had some pushback about this, just let, let me know, is that um, no matter how much initiative we take individually, uh, there's no way we're going to grapple with the climate dragon unless we achieve major policy transformations at all levels of government, especially at the federal level and at the international level. So, you know, is, is it possible that you get any pushback from people who might say, you're spending all this time working on individuals' actions when what we need to be doing is pushing for political transformation? Two, two things. First of all, I can't control the government. I can only control my own choices. My own choices multiplied by a population of 8 billion on the planet can make a very big contribution to climate responsiveness. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm of that opinion as well. My, my, my opinion is you've got to do both. You've got to push hard for policy changes, whether it's your, your school district, your, your city council, your county government, your state legislature, the federal government. It's got to all come together. But yeah, you don't. You have to be that change that you want to see in the world, so to speak. So, but yeah. I, I'm curious about the, uh, the the second day of your. Um, I mean, Americans, maybe more so than other people in the, around the world, <laughs> uh, we, we we tend not we tend to try to avoid pain, <laughs> uh, and understandably, that's 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 part of the human condition. You really don't want to go out of your way to feel pain. That's part of the description of your second day, I believe. Moving right. through pain. What is what? What do you see? How do you see that conversation unfolding? Well, before we can move in a direction, we first need to understand where we're starting from. Uh, if if you think that you're starting in A and you're starting in B and you have a map and you want to get to C, the changes that you will make in your navigation are very different depending on where you think you're beginning. So that's why. I feel like we need to ground ourselves in reality well, and we'll do that throughout, but in not in a way that leads to doom and gloom, rather that leads to uh, a raw, real reality check so that we can go from doom and gloom to fun and done. And, um, <laughs> that's nice. That's, yeah. that's good. That might, that, you might, might, might be able to work that into a poem. <laughs> ah, thank you. I'll think about that. <laughs> or a song even. I, I, maybe I can provide some accompaniment. But, uh, you know, that's, that's, very, that's very powerful. And I think, um, uh, you know, The Race to Save the World just came out, and that's a film that uh, you and I both had a small part to play in because we were on the Great March for Climate Action, which is one of the actions featured in the film. But uh, the the producer, the the director producer uh, Joe Gantz, uh, made it clear that you know there are a lot of films out there, a lot of books out there, a lot of lectures out there that j j just say we are in a world of hurt, and um, that's true. And people know that, and some people are already experiencing the pain of a changing climate, and more and more are aware that there will be great pain involved as the climate mm -hmm. continues to change, and as we 
try to find ways of adapting to that. Um, but the, the, the power behind something like the Race to Save the World is that it shows what people are doing to move through that pain. And it sounds like really what you're doing is very similar. Uh, you know, on, and on a personal level, what, you know, how do you embrace the reality that there is suffering and discomfort and pain involved in the, in the climate emergency? And yet, how are we going to harness that, uh, that uh, emotion and move to a point of, you know, concrete action? As Dr. Martin Luther King said, and of course, uh, our race relations are a very big piece of what's happening right now in America. He said, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Mm. And so this is what we're offering. We're offering a way in which to live in greater harmony, both with ourselves and with others. Yeah. And, uh, I, I trust, I trust that we're going to figure out a way to survive these changes. And I do want to say to your, your listeners, if we are only just beginning, and yet because we have waited so long, we have a very short amount of time to make the necessary adjustment. Right, yeah. And uh, Kat, with that, I am out of time. I've got to move on to the uh, to a break here in our next conversation. But uh, I really appreciate you joining us, folks. We've been talking with Kat Haber. She's organizing the Living Brightly, a climate activation workshop. And if folks want to get involved with the uh, workshop, if they want to participate, where, where should we send them, Kat? They could go to trustclimateactionstrategists.com. Great. You'll find everything there. Okay. Thank we'll, you, Ed. And we'll promote that on the uh, Fallon Forum Facebook page as well. When we come back, folks, uh, John Niederbrock is going to join us. We're going to engage a dialogue on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Back in a few minutes on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon with you here, folks, as we broadcast this uh, podcast and this radio program from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, thanks again to our local business partners and nonprofit partners, uh, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or just give Dr. Holding a call at 515 515- 
232-8766. That's 232-8766. Thanks also to Western Optometry, where your comfort and vision is the staff's primary concern. Western staff is fluent in both English and Spanish. The clinic in Des Moines East Village is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. I'd like to welcome John Neiderbach to the program. Uh, John and I go way back. He's the uh, former president of the Des Moines School Board and a retired nonpartisan analyst for the Iowa legislature, which is where we first met, I think, back in 1993. John is also Jewish, a progressive Democrat, and very active in our community on many levels. John, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. The Palestinian-Israeli conflict. My, I mean, I, I don't even know where to start sometimes, but uh, my take is we primarily are looking at a horrible human rights situation uh, that seems intractable for some reason, but to me, it should be, I mean, it seems like more and more of the international community is coming together to say there is a solution to this. Am I overstating the, the, uh, the reality here, John? Well, I think given the types of conflict it is, types of conflicts that are involved, there are many solutions. I mean, there is almost an infinite number of negotiation and negotiated resolutions that could take place. Uh, we're not talking about a one-issue thing where you can't uh, compromise at all. There are lots of places for people to compromise. The problem, I think, is that lots of folks who are involved in this have no political or other incentive to compromise. Indeed, they are egged on to take very hardline stances that make compromise difficult and really foreclose it going forward. That's what we have to figure out a way to, to change. Well, I mean, you, you've got situations all over the world. Um, hopefully, over time, we'll see less and less of them. But right now, of course, you've got a terrible situation in Myanmar. Uh, we've got the situation in Belarus, Ukraine, uh, a lot of places there are there is turmoil. But this particular uh, situation seems, to me, it seems kind of black and white. You've got a, I mean, and I, I'm I'm fully supportive of of the Jewish people. I'm I'm a big fan. I I learned Hebrew in in college. Uh, I just had the honor of going to my first seder uh, or Passover seder dinner. But I I look at what's happening with the state of Israel, and I think, how how is this how is this able to continue? This um this marginalization of half the population. Uh, I mean, who half the population denied basic civil rights, denied basic necessities. Uh, how is that allowed to continue? Why, why is that not a, a fairly simple problem to address? Well, I think what we need is two states for two peoples. The, the odds that, that you can have a Jewish homeland, which is what Israel was created as in 1948 by the UN in a country that is, how do I want to say this, uh, very diverse, although today it is very diverse, even more diverse with one nation, is probably impossible. If you uni fully unify the odds of it being a Jewish state, a homeland for a Jewish people, a refuge from all the bigotry and all the anti-Semitism 
that Jews have and continue to face, the odds of that happening is really low. So two states for two peoples is what's been agreed to by the Palestinian Authority. But it's a lot been agreed of, to by Israel. It's been agreed to by the United States and many other countries. But a lot, a lot of folks are seeing that as unworkable. And, and to me, the, um, I mean, every, every nation has its minority populations. Uh, and even if you try to create a state that is all Jewish, all Hindu, all Muslim, all white, whatever, whatever, whatever unique you know, identity you want, you want to base your demographic on, there's always going to be minorities. There's always oh, going to certainly. be. And so, you know, it, it just seems like it's not possible to do that, even if that was a good idea. And it just doesn't seem like a good idea to me. And again, going back to the foundation of Israel, and again, I, I think there are very few people in the world who wouldn't agree that what happened in World War II to the Jewish people in Europe was, was absolutely an abomination. It was, it's, it's almost unfathomable. I mean, I think about what happened to my, my people, my ancestors, the Irish, 600 years of imperialism, um, attempted genocide through the guise of a famine, you know, and as bad as all that was, I mean, a million Irish just, you know, killed or you know, starved to death or were, were forced to emigrate, you know, very little, very little comes, <laughs> you know, historically is as bad as what happened in Europe in World War II um, in terms of numbers and just the sheer atrocity. But, um, you know, establishing the state of Israel meant taking land from someone else. It meant taking land that at that point was under the control of Britain. Right. It was a British protectorate. Which there's point. no reason it should have. I mean, that was that was another type of imperialism. And of course, before that, it was Ottoman Empire right. imperialism. There's <laughs> always been, and there's always been that, that. That's always been going on in that region. At some point, you'd like to think, well, maybe maybe the different factions can live in peace, can get along. Yes. And I and to me, the the bottom line is there has to be equal protection under the law. There has to be essential human rights. Absolutely. And so how, how do, why, why can't we get to that right now with the, with the current um, demographic, what about 6.8 million Jews and Palestinians both living in that area? Well, in Israel, there are about 8 million people, round numbers, 8.5 million people, about in rough numbers, 2 million of whom are, are Muslim. Okay. And they are citizens of Israel. And then in Gaza, you have about two and a half million. Right. And I'm not sure I have on the tip of my tongue the population of the West Bank, but it's several million people. I think it all comes down to that. about seven million. Yeah, so probably each. I was thinking about four million people right. in the West Bank. So you could have a resolution of this tomorrow. There is nothing blocking a resolution other than people. Well, other than the Israeli and the U.S. government. No, I would say it very differently. I mean, Hamas... Really? Frankly, I think we have to get rid of Hamas. There is no way they, they can agree to having two states while keeping the entity Hamas because they are sworn to not having two states. Okay. Now, you can have the same people and they just realign. That happens all the time in, in world affairs and politics. But to have the entity of Hamas which in its original charter says incredibly anti-Semitic things. Anti-Jewish things. Anti-Jewish yeah, things, yeah. yes. Because remember, we're talking about both, both peoples are Semitic. Yes, although in common parlance, anti-Semitism refers to anti-Jewish Jewish bigotry. You can right. call it Jew-hating, you can call it whatever phrase you want. Um, I, I know somebody, some, some um, local 
uh, folks are using the phrase Jew-hating instead of anti-Semitism, just for no reason. Um, But there, there, there are many, many possibilities. The problem right now is there are too many political constraints on the actors who have lots of incentive to keep war going. There was about to be an historic event in Israel of a coalition government that included representatives of Israeli Arabs, which would have been an amazing thing. A, a coalition government, they have never participated in government before. They've always been in opposition. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are members of the Knesset, right. of the Israeli parliament, who are representatives of the Israeli Arabs. They were about to form, to join in coalition. That was one of the reasons, I think, Hamas was favorably disposed to something that would disrupt those efforts. And quite frankly, I think, and this is probably a minority view among supporters of Israel, but I think it was something that probably um, raised concern among Netanyahu, who right now is fighting for his political life and facing all kinds of corruption charges. So, you know, and also then you have an outside there, you have Iran, which very clearly wanted to test Israeli defenses. Why do we know this? Because they said it. (laughs) Bizarrely, they issued a statement saying, we see new flaws in the Israeli defenses. If you fire a barrage of rockets, you overwhelm Iron Dome. So you have Iran out there. Iron Dome is the Israeli defense system. Anti-missile defense Paid for largely by U.S. taxpayer dollars. I think it was a joint effort. I don't know the exact numbers of funding for it, but technology development was certainly... Um, very, very, very innovative, and the U.S. is, and that, is incorporating and, and, that into our own defense. And that is the defensive system that has prevented a lot of Hamas's missiles yes. from yes. striking their intended targets. But Iran wanted to see what could be used to overwhelm Iron Dome. So there were lots of people. This is so much more than a Muslim Jewish fight. This is so much more than or, or so much less than a Muslim Jewish fight, you might say. That is, I mean, that is of course there. I've been to Israel four times and I've talked to many Israeli Arabs. That is always there. Yeah. But on the other hand, an awful lot of people want to go on with their lives and raise families and prosper and pray and have stability. So what we need to do is figure out a way to get the barriers that are standing in the way out of a way, and that's possible. That is doable. It's just people. Well, let, let me. I got to run to a short break, John. I want to continue this conversation, folks. Uh, Ed Fallon with you here, talking with John Niederbach about the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, we're going to go for another ten minutes on this and and see if we can solve the problem by the end of the show. And oh, pass sure, we that, can. And pass that advice along to President Biden and, uh, and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Sounds good. Uh, <laughs> back in a minute, folks. With you on the Fallon Forum. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas-Finley. You can also enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates, too. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. 
Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the program, folks. Uh, Ed Fallon with you here. Again, thanking our local business partners who make this program possible. Thank you to Architecture by Synthesis, where Mark Clipsham offers planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Mark specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's Architecture by Synthesis. With me in the studio today, John Niederbach. We are discussing the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And, um, you know, I, I, my feeling is that violent... I, I, I'm not a hardcore pacifist, but I come darn close. And I don't believe that uh, violence on either side of this conflict is helping things out. Uh, so, I, you know, I, and I... Again, speaking as an Irishman, Irish-American, uh, who has spent a good chunk of my life in Ireland and spent a lot of time as a, as a young kid there. The, um, the IRA, I've never been a fan of the IRA. And to me, that's kind of the Irish equivalent of Hamas. Um, but the IRA moved from being a, let's call it what it was, a terrorist organization to being a viable element of the political discussion in, in, in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland. And, uh, and one thing that changed was that... Uh, you know, that there, there was the, 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 the there, I, I will say that the, you know the it took time, but there was a movement toward greater uh, equality among Irish Catholic you know Irish Catholics and Northern Irish Protestants, uh, and it seems to me that if you want to get Hamas to transform and either to, either to go away or to transform into something that's not focused on military action, focused on political change. Maybe the starting point is to dramatically improve the human rights record that currently, you know, is 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 so abominable. It's I mean, there's not a country in the world that isn't criticizing uh, Israel and the U.S. for the current human rights situation, and it seems like that might be the starting point. In 2006, Israeli troops pulled out of Gaza. And very bluntly, forcibly removed uh, several thousand settlers, some of whom I've talked to because they live right next to. They lived for a while right next to the kibbutz my sister lives in when they were when they were evacuated mm. when they were moved. Okay. It was a very traumatic thing for Israel. The reason they did it is they thought, first of all, occupying militarily at Gaza was a nightmare. For everybody. Uh, for everybody. It was, it, was idiot. it was a bad, bad situation. And also, they had hopes that would lead to greater peace overtures. They would move things forward in the post-Oslo Accords. It didn't happen. Israelis bring it up to me whenever I say, well, why, don't, is, why doesn't Israel try some more carrots? Well, we, 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 we dangled a big carriage. We, 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 we left. Well, if you leave, but then you leave behind uh, poor water systems, uh, a failed electric, electrical grid, um, a poor health care system. 
the, uh, the world needs to give a whole bunch of money, and we're not talking huge amounts in the overall scheme of things, to improve the infrastructure of Gaza why is and that, West Bank. Why, why is that the responsibility of the world and not the country in which those people live? Well, I don't think Gaza has the money to do it. No, Israel has the money to do it. Well, but it's not, it's not, it's not part of Israel. It's effectively <laughs> controlled by Israel. You yeah, have it both ways. Okay, but, but but certainly money could be found wherever wherever from. I mean, if there was a hard, if it was a, a a strong light, a very bright light at the end of a tunnel, mm-hmm. Israel has a lot of money to do desalinization plans, mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of things to improve the infrastructure of of Gaza, and certainly there are many other countries that would, would derive a benefit from that happening and be more than happy to contribute. That is, money is cheap. <laughs> really? In, in, in this situation, <laughs> money is cheap. Money is, is plentiful and disposable. Well, the problem is okay. how do you make sure the money is used okay, fair for enough. that those purposes? I think there's a perception by... But the, by Israelis, but, that when when money is given to do this, it is used instead to build tunnel attack tunnels that were recently destroyed that run underneath the border into Israel. But the, the, does Israel? Okay, so th- this is a stated policy of the uh, government of Israel, in mm-hmm. a, as, as noted in a 2021 this year Human Rights Watch report. And I quote, a stated aim of the Israeli government is to ensure that Jewish Israelis maintain domination across Israel and the occupied territories. With that as a stated purpose, uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you see moving toward equality? How do you see moving toward... The problem is the politics that have been created by all these years of constant flare-ups are very, very toxic. The, politi- the politics in Israel have been very, very toxic, and I believe Netanyahu has exacerbated these mm-hmm. intentionally to keep, mostly to keep power. He has put together a coalition that, encom- that encompasses some very, very nationalistic people. We were on the cusp of a major change in terms of a new coalition being built. And that was when? In the last three months, mm-hmm. since since the start of the year. I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say March or April, who, who exactly you, when it was. Who would you say instituted or instigated that, that uh, movement toward a significant change? Well, the opposition parties, and there were okay. a whole bunch that were involved in And they were in powerful it. enough to put pressure on them. Yeah, Lapid is probably the, okay. the key uh, player in it, but there were plenty of other people. Um, I mean, I know there's a radical fringe. But it's a co- I mean, what's hard for Americans to often get is it's a parliamentary system with a coalition government. They have an extraordinary, they are, they are so bent on democracy. You know, people complain about a two-party system in the U.S. Yeah, I do. And I'm not thrilled <laughs> with it in many ways, okay? But Israel has, I forget the exact number, but it doesn't require very many, very high percentage of a vote to be guaranteed representation in, in the Knesset. Mm-hmm. And so you have a tremendously splintered, it's over 20 parties. 
Yeah. It's very, very, very splintered That sounds like a lot of system. fun. It's a lot of fun. And they well, scream at each other, yeah. and it's chaotic. <laughs> and, and it, it, you know, it, it is a vibrant democracy, I, I probably too vibrant. I understand how that makes it more difficult. And, but and it makes it very hard, particularly, you know, there's all kinds of interesting dynamics close to, I want to say, well, over a million um, Russian Jews of varying levels of religi- religious background came to Israel when the Soviet Union allowed Jews, back in the days it was the Soviet Union, allowed Jews to leave. Mm-hmm. That changed the politics a great deal. Right. Um, but uh, what is lost <clears throat> in the discussion so often is an understanding or, or, or even an acknowledgement that there's complicated internal politics involved and and constant attacks yeah. then, exacerbate but, that and as, I get as that. it exacerbates Hamas. It, it, it incentivizes Hamas. But, but if, if the U.S. government said, okay, we've had enough, we're going to join the rest of the world in calling for true democratic reform, yes. for, for uh, you know, there's got to be immediate efforts to vastly improve the infrastructure in Gaza, in Palestine. Uh, Palestinians have to have the same right of travel, of uh, representation that uh, is that Israeli Jews have, mm-hmm. if, if the U.S. were to say that, wouldn't this thing be over? In exchange for a cessation of all hostilities? Yeah, no, on both no, sides. No, yeah, no, no mean, more no more rockets being launched. No more ramming attacks in Jerusalem and knifing attacks in Jerusalem. And no more Muslim temples being 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 attacked. You know, I mean that that, no that more, was a problem as well. And no more stones being thrown from the Muslim temples, which yeah. is what precipitated the right, assault. Although, you know, stones stones are really a, well, a everybody you know, had an interest. Of, but that's my that's my banner. Yeah, how you can tell everybody had an interest. Yeah. in causing a, an uproar. Both the Israeli government, and this is a minority view probably among the supporters of Israel in America, <laughs> but everybody had an interest right. in causing a conflagration, mm. and boy, did it blow up. Yeah. Because nobody wanted the and coalition s- government. Hamas is, didn't yeah. want the coalition government. Right. Ham- and also, Hamas has its own problems with the PA, yeah. the Palestinian Authority. So it, I guess what I'm saying is some people get mad when you say it's a complicated matter because they think it means... We're talking about history. History of it is important, but you know, I, I never look back too much because mm-hmm. today is today. We can right. move forward. Fair enough. But you have to look at the complex complexity of the players who are involved, what their motivations are today, mm. so and let, also never forget about Iran, which and, and constantly and, and, terrifies right, Israel. Let, let me ask you one thing: we haven't talked about yet. The uh, the U.S. evangelical community that see Israel as a linchpin yes. to the launching of the rapture, the end of the world, and the and and their trip off to the uh, the beautiful beyond. Uh, I, I you know having talked with some not, not all maybe even not most but enough evangelical Christians who really yes. believe that hey this would be a good thing if Israel had a big blow up and suddenly rapture and we're out of here. Yes. I mean, how significant is that? Is that so bizarre that it's not really influential? But it seems to me that it is because of money. Well, but I'm not sure it's affecting Benjamin Netanyahu's decision-making tree. Mm-hmm. I don't think. It, I don't think he's he really looking doesn't at American, want Armageddon. I don't think he's no. I mean, he really, Jews, really can't Jews campaign on conceptualize in those terms. So yeah. no. But the, but there are people uh, who, who expect that Ameri- in this country. There are American Christians who certainly are. An interesting poll recently shows that number is declining. But I think we're running short of time. As it should, John. I've enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, Knowing that we have a difference of opinion, that uh, that means a lot to me, and I hope. I'm that, not uh, sure 
we do that much? Well, not as much as um, some on either of our sites might have. Yes. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining us, John. And uh, folks, uh, when we come back, uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be joined by Russ Finch and Kathy Burns. Uh, Kathy and I are going to talk with Russ about the greenhouse in the snow, where tropical fruits are being grown in western Nebraska in the dead of winter. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, and thanks again to our local business partners. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. You can now order your groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Joining me for our final segment today is Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm in Des Moines. Uh, Kathy, let's welcome Russ Finch to the program. Uh, Russ created Greenhouse in the Snow. He's in Alliance, Nebraska, and over the past 35 years, he's perfected his greenhouse using low-grade geothermal energy to grow tropical fruits and other things year-round. Russ, uh, welcome to the program. Yeah, sure. So, um... What do you grow in your greenhouse? Um, we, in the original greenhouse, it's 29 years old now. We grow, uh, we have uh, mature 12 foot um, lemon trees, uh, 13 varieties of citrus. We have figs, um, kiwi, pomegranate, and um, thousands of, of other plants. This, this unit was a hobby for 18 years before we uh, turned it into a commercial wow. enterprise. But um, it, uh, we just brought in everything we could find to see what it would do. And the original greenhouse doesn't have heat system except for the underground uh, geothermal. So we can grow everything up to uh, bananas, mango, coffee, uh, pineapple. but. This unit is a little too cold for that, but all of our new units, they can grow bananas or anything. Russ, that's amazing. Ed and I grow some food in the winter, or through the winter, we have two cold frames in our four foot by eight foot garden beds, and we start spinach and lettuce in those and some arugula, and uh, we enjoy salad you know, from March sure. 1st on. Mm -hmm. So 
Uh, nothing tropical, though. And <laughs> yeah, we're jealous. And uh, and we are kind of jealous. What 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 is uh, what were you doing with the food that you grew before you went commercial? Was it all just for self enjoyment? Well, yeah, <clears throat> before we went commercial, we were using it all, um, and we sold a little of it um, through a, a little nursery north of us that had a uh, greenhouse or it had a uh, farmer's market and um, we would take in like 40 pounds on the one day she was there she would always sell it uh, sell out so but by the middle of the uh, summer we were out of uh, produce but now she's retired so um, now we leave everything hanging on the tree just to show people because we have so many tours. Oh, wow. Okay. So how big is this greenhouse? The, the original one is 78 foot long and 16 foot wide. Now, the new ones are all 17 foot wide, but they're up to, uh, we don't like to go over 102 foot long but we can go from 36 to 102 foot. We have several that are uh, over that up to 150 foot, but they're not uh, as easy to manage. Russ, it's amazing. And when I think about eating citrus in the winter in Iowa, I have little pangs of guilt, even in the summer, because I think about our carbon footprint with all that produce being trucked in from faraway places. You're not that far from us. Um, <laughs> how, how do you see your system affecting the, the carbon footprint and consumption of citrus fruits in the Midwest? Well, yeah, and, and too, we, we figure that if we had enough of these greenhouses, like co-ops, that we could probably furnish most all of the citrus and that type in this area. Um, we, uh, we're really isolated out here, uh, where the greenhouse is, but we have over 5 million customers with, um, within four hours of us on the front range in Colorado. Yeah. And, uh, my understanding too, is that you have actually begun to sell these, uh, this greenhouse model and that there's quite a bit of interest in, in, yeah. We, we have 255 of them up and growing now uh, all over the U.S., in Canada, and Europe. And they're all geothermal heated? Yeah, yeah, all of them. Uh, and they all have the four-foot pit that they, they grow in. Yeah. So, I mean, there's got to be a, a huge um, reduction in carbon in, in the carbon footprint. I mean, first of all, you're not... You're not you're not heating yeah. the greenhouse with, with fossil fuel, yeah. and you're also not trucking in fruit, or trucking or yeah, flying in fruit no, from other we're, countries. No, we're not trucking in anything. Uh, everything we're selling is pretty much local. If we need to, um, if they did set it up, it would be less than 250 miles. Russ, what growing media do you use? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is, has any hydroponics or if it's all soil, if well, it's organic. Yeah. Um, you can't name anything that somebody's not growing <laughs> in, in <laughs> our units. And in, in our unit, um, we're growing in the original topsoil that we set aside and brought back in the bottom of the four-foot pit. But um, a lot of them are amending the soil. And um, then um, we, we 
don't use uh, we use very very little to fertilizer um, after the first year we have so much compost that we compost everything and we use a lot of compost so is uh, is is it cost effective to grow tropical fruits this way yeah so and all of all of these trees are 12 foot tall and um, they're in the ground. They're not ah. in. Uh, we've tried uh, growing in containers, big tubs, and it just doesn't work. But in the ground is the answer. Right. Very good. Well, that's that's impressive. Uh, you know. So, do you have? Um, are there local stores that buy from you as opposed to buying from? The, um, sell anything out of the greenhouse we leave okay, everything right. hanging right, to show that. people yeah. on tours but um the ideal thing is if if you uh grocery stores will will buy the produce but you have to discount to a grocery store the ideal thing is either farmer's market or locally grown advertise locally grown or um you can um uh, just donate <laughs> some of them donate and, and grow for um, you know community gardens and things like that Russ how many people does it take to run say one typical greenhouse is this a good employment opportunity for folks uh, well not really it takes very little um, the one that we have at Scotts Bluff Nebraska is owned by the state and uh, we get a lot of data from them because they can't sell anything out of it. They have to donate everything to the nursing homes and the vet's home. And uh, they weigh everything that leaves. So we, we get really good data. And um, they, they have tremendous crops. Uh, it's a lot different than growing outdoors. Um, your tomato plants, you grow... Uh, about 10 inches apart on strings up over the, the, the uh, canopy. And um, you get a, a lot of, um, of added uh, produce that way. So one, uh, one last question for you, Russ. Um, for folks in our audience who might not be familiar with uh, some of the geography of the Midwest, Alliance Nebraska is uh, in the mountain time zone, and you can... Yeah. It's not? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you're, you're in western Nebraska, correct? Right. right. We're right in the middle of the panhandle, right. 80 okay. miles from Wyoming. And you get, some, you get some real winter out there. Some what? Real winter. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. we, um, in the winter, we'll have at least three or four days of 27 below zero. And um, wow. uh, then the next day, it might be 30 above. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Russ, um, I got to wrap up the program. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I'd love to visit your uh, visit your place someday. It's very intriguing. We've been talking with Russ Finch with the uh, Greenhouse in the Snow in Alliance, Nebraska. Russ, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you, folks. I've been delighted to have uh, uh, a real slate of interesting people join us on today's program. Steve Norris, Cat Haber, John Niederbach, Russ Finch, and Kathy Burns. Thanks to our business partners, Gateway Market. Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Westrum Optometry, and Groovy Goods. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks also to our 
our band, Brother Trucker, for providing our bumper music, and our production team of Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. Talk to you next week, folks, on the Fallon Forum.